there is a lot of hardness. I mean, it is, it's just difficult to do. I mean, it just is. And I know it's not like doing construction work or something that's physically hard, but mostly it's just emotionally hard. It's emotionally draining to do it. And it's emotionally draining when you are always afraid that you're not doing enough, that your writing isn't going to be good enough. And I think I've moved past that sort of anxiety a little bit. And so I've been trying to sort of retrain myself to think of this as I get to write, I get to go play, I get to create something that's magical and amazing. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 217 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope that you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyotsuka.com. If you're a regular listener, you likely know about my signature program, Your ADHD Brain is A-OK. We call it A-OK for short. This is the program that I built off of my patented cartography system to help ADHD women figure out what they should do with their life. ADHD is completely misnamed. We know this, right? We don't have a deficit of attention. We have a surplus of attention. We're interested in so much, which often means that we struggle with trying to figure out which of the many interests that we do have is actually the one that we should pursue. With AOK, we start from the inside out and we figure out who you really are. What's important to you? What is it that you value? What are your strengths, passions, superpowers, and purpose? Which is really what you should build your life around, right? I mean, who cares where you fit in? You're not meant to fit in. You're meant to stand out. And that's exactly what we do in AOK. We learn where and how to stand out. So AOK includes live office hours and coaching with me, a community, the AOK system, 
worksheets. You'll create your own AOK intelligence report, which you'll be able to refer to for the rest of your life. And the thing about AOK is it's a lot of fun. It is so much fun learning about ourselves, right? We've wondered for years why we do what we do, why we feel the way we feel. Well, I'm going to show you why in AOK. So one of our students said this about AOK. Thank you so much for helping me see my potential and gain more confidence in making decisions about how I want to live my life. After endless sessions with psychiatrists and psychologists throughout the years, no one, and she put that in big, bold caps, has ever come close to what this program has to offer. And just so you know, this quote is from Ava Katrin Segura Dotier, who is a medical doctor. So we're going to start on Tuesday, March 14th. We'll have our first office hours on Wednesday, March 15th, and our office hours are every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific time. We're going to try something different this year, and we're going to be going through our normal six-step AOK program, but we've added a two-week implementation period. So the program will actually run eight weeks. So if you sign up with the code SPRING2023, you'll get $100 off of your ADHD brain is A-OK until the program is full. You can find more information at tracyoutsuka.com forward slash A-OK. And don't forget to use the code SPRING2023. I would love to have you join us. So now let's get on to our podcast. My purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. And in the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something, not one. So of course, I am just delighted to introduce you to Emily McCaskill. I have a wonderful podcast producer who sets up all my notes and information on each client in a Google Doc. And that makes it so much easier for me to prepare since the research is mostly there. And yesterday, when I was prepping for our guest, I looked at her bio and I said, yes, I remembered looking at her information several months ago and just knew this would be such a fun interview. So here we go. Emily writes young adult novels as Emily McKay and romantic comedies as Emily Jane. She's a USA Today best-selling, award-winning author. She's been nominated for the prestigious Rita Award three times, and she won it once. So let me start that again. Emily is an award-winning author of nearly 40 books from publishers such as Penguin, Random House, Harlequin, Walker Books, Entangled, and Smarty Pants Romance. She has also recently co-founded her own company, Book, I think it's called, Emily, is it called Book Plus Love, Inc., or just Book Love, Inc.? Just Book Love, Inc. Okay, but there's a little plus sign in the middle, right? Yeah. (laughs) So um, she'll have more creative control of her books, her finances, and her future. She also volunteers as a robotics mentor at the local high school and lives in Central Texas with her husband and two very nerdy kids, her words, not mine. They have dogs, chickens, cats, and more Legos than they know what to do with. Welcome, Emily. Did I get all of that right? You did. Wonderful. So I'm curious, do you live in the country? We live in the suburbs, but a sort of wilder part of the suburbs. <laughs> what um, does that mean? Oh, oh, sorry. And my printer just cycled on, of course, in the background. I didn't even hear it. Okay, good. 
When we moved out here like 25 years ago, this was undeveloped. This, I mean, it wasn't undeveloped, but it was less suburban than it is now. And so we have like two acres in a little sort of a neighborhood that is a little rougher around the edges than the rest of suburban Austin is. Um, so we're extremely lucky that Austin sort of grow out to meet us. And mm-hmm. we still have our little like two acres with no homeowners associations or anything like that. So we can have chickens and we can uh, have a little bit of space without being quite so civilized. You know, I live, this is also why I was excited to talk to you because I thought, I feel like I have so much in common with you. I live in an area similar to where you live, where we're in the country, but we're literally like five minutes from the freeway and five minutes from, you know, town. Yeah. So it's just a really nice compliment that you feel like you're out in the country, but if you need services, they're right there. As exactly. If, you know, yes. I think we're closer to services than we were before when we were actually in town. So how old are your kids? My daughter is 17 and my son is 15. Okay. So they're teenagers. Yes. How's that going? Um, I wish that applying to colleges was less stressful. <laughs> I totally, I totally relate. I, honestly, I think it's all a boondoggle. <laughs> it really is. And I, you know, I know that there are all of these, like, we live in a, in a very tough school district academically. It's very challenging. And, um, and it, our area is pretty prosperous. So I know there are people who, like higher coaches and mm-hmm. um, whatnot. And so I'm familiar with all of the fancy tricks that kids use to get into college. And I didn't want my daughter to do any of that. I was like, mm-hmm. I want you to end up in a place that wants you for you and not because we hired someone to help you start a nonprofit, you know, <laughs> uh, at three years old. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I feel like she's wonderful and talented and amazing and that she'll end up where she needs to be. And, um, you know, she has ADHD also, both my kids do. And I feel like the amazing thing about college for kids with ADHD is you're really hitting your intellectual stride in college. You know, like you're able to have more control over the classes you're taking. Uh, you're able to do things you're interested in. Um, and you, I think, I know there are a lot of people who struggle when they have ADHD in college. And then there's a lot of people who really flourish there. Um, And I think it depends on being in the right place and having a major that you're excited about and interested in. Absolutely. I think the kids that struggle are the kids who have this idea that, you know, you're not going to be successful if you don't major in science and math, something related to science and math, and they're not good at science and math and they have no interest in it. Right. Um, And then, of course, you know, attached to all the stress and anxiety of then having to literally manage yourself and having no scaffolding because the scaffolding you had is now back home with your parents, right? (laughs) Right. Yes. Yes. I totally, I totally get that. Okay. So let's talk about your ADHD diagnoses first, if that's okay. Absolutely. What happened? So I'm 51. So I'm the classic ADHD girl of the 70s, i.e., Back when I was in in elementary and middle school, girls, quote unquote, didn't have ADHD. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
I knew that I was different, that I learned differently because um, like when I was in the second grade, you know, the teacher brought my parents in and they were like, well, Emily is very slow. She's not very smart at all. Oh my God. Uh, Did they really say that? Yeah. Yeah. Cause it was the seventies and teachers said things like that. Um, you know, it was like, maybe she'll, you know, she'll be able to go to, maybe she'll be able to graduate with, if we give her all the right support. And my parents, my mom said, no, I don't accept that. And at the time I was in a reading group that was like, I don't even think there were three tiers. I think I was in the fourth tier (laughs) because it was me and a girl with like severe learning disabilities Mm -hmm. and a boy who was English wasn't his first language. And then me. And, um, (laughs) and my mom was like, no, there's gotta be, I don't accept that. There's gotta be books that we can read that we can do at home. I want whatever support material I can get. And I'm going to teach her how to read at home. If you can't teach her how to read at school. So I knew that had happened, right? Like I remember that happening. And then at some point they, she got me barely up to grade level on reading in elementary school and we moved to a new school district and then I was behind again. So I was basically, I didn't read on grade level until the sixth grade when, um, the summer before sixth grade, I started reading romance novels. I was, I was like 10 or 11 and picked up my first Harlequin romance novel and loved it and could not stop reading. And that was the thing that got me up to being a really proficient reader was just loving romance novels. And so how did you find a Harlequin romance novel at 11? So the funny thing is, is that my mom got it free in a box of hefty trash bags which was some weird promotion that they had that summer. And I mean, it's perfect because the box of hefty trash bags is exactly the size of a paperback novel. Right. And, um, you know, it was like, she got one free and I grabbed it and started reading it and loved it. And I remember at the time thinking, Oh my gosh, they must have picked the best book they had to put in this promotion to give away because that just hooked me. And then of course I, I discovered it was, they were all that good. (laughs) And so was your mom like, okay, who cares what she's reading as long as she's reading pretty much. She kind of, was she kind of appalled initially? Uh, I, at first I don't think they cared by the time I was like a senior in high school and spending all my free time reading romance novels. By then they started to get worried because I think they were like, what are you going to do? You can't live your entire life just sitting on the bed reading romance novels. And um, I was like, yes, I can. (laughs) Okay. So we were talking about um, your ADHD diagnoses and how you struggled in school with, was it only reading? It was reading, but it was also all of the social aspects, which I, I didn't recognize until much later. I just thought I was weird. You know, like I thought, um, for some reason I, I didn't have, I didn't lack confidence about my intelligence. Like I always felt like I was smart, but I just felt like I was a, a weird dork who liked reading too much and didn't know how to 
didn't know all the social cues that other people seemed to know. Um, but in retrospect, all of that is female ADHD stuff, right? I just, I didn't know that's what it was. So can I ask you, did you have friends or no friends and you basically just read all the time? I did have friends. A lot of the friends I had in retrospect were not like great friends. Um, you know, like, but I did have friends. I hung out. I did. I, I was also involved in like speech and debate, which um, mm. like the theater part of that. And I think that's a natural fit for ADHD because we we're good at assuming other people's identities, you know, character identities. So I was pretty competent in that. And I, I got I got decent grades. And when I went off to college, I got friends who were better friends. And, you know, I got along with people. I just I was never one of those confident, cool kids. You know, I was always the nerdy dork. And did you always feel, Emily, like the friends that you had at that time, there, there was just something different about you. Like you were not connected to them like they were connected to each other. Yes, absolutely. So you felt different. Yes. Okay, keep going. So you went to college. Did you struggle that first year in college or did you know what you wanted to do at that point? Were you like, I am going to write romance novels? Yes, I was. I knew I wanted to write romance novels. You know, romance novels back then, still today some, but especially back then, did not get any kind of like legitimate respect. So I did not go into a creative writing program. I just got an English major. And of course, my parents had been telling me um, that I, I couldn't write romance novels for a living. Um, and so <laughs> I, I'm going to um, show them. Yeah. Well, I, I was like, OK, I guess I can't do that for a living. So I'll be a teacher. Right. I'll be an English teacher, which I did do for four years. And. You know, I studied I, I did really good in college and I just kept reading and kept, you know, doing all of those things, I still, I, I had better friends in college, connected a little bit better, but still there was an element of emotional, um, in like, um, dysregulation or yes, definitely emotional dysregulation and, and poor decision-making in terms of time management. All of those things have always been true for me. And I guess just like a lack of social awareness, you know, like my husband, courted me pretty heavily and I didn't see it for a while, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> when I was a freshman and we met, like we, we did a lot of things together and other people would be like, you know, he's into you. And I'd be like, nah, we're just friends. <laughs> <laughs> so stuff like that, that sort of missing of social cues, a lot of that has always been an issue for me, but I had no idea there was anything not nor I mean I knew I knew I was awkward and weird but I didn't know what it was I didn't have any idea that there was an actual learning disability or anything like that going on until um I met a I had a friend a writer friend who is dyslexic and listening to her talk about her experience I was like okay it's that I'm I'm dyslexic that must be what it is just undiagnosed dyslexia I've always been a horrible speller I've always had the the whole right hand left hand issue has always been a problem. Um, my handwriting is bad. What do you mean when you say right hand left hand has been a problem? Oh, where you have to like you have to pause and think about right and left. Ah, um, yeah, and mm -hmm. use the little like look down at your hands and the the forefinger and thumb that make the L. That's your left. Oh my gosh! Okay, wow. 
um, those things. So it's like, you know, if you look at a Venn diagram of dyslexia and ADHD, um, I had all of the all of the symptoms that fall into that middle slice. Oh, yeah. But I didn't. I, you're cutting out again. Oh, no. And it's it was it's so good what you were saying, too. Okay. Can you hear me now? Should I repeat that? Yeah. Yeah. If you look at the Venn diagram of ADHD and dyslexia, I have all the symptoms that fall into that little slice where they overlap. Um, mm-hmm. The bad handwriting, the bad spelling, that kind of stuff. So I just thought, okay, it was that. I was dis- I, It was never diagnosed. That's what I had. And then when I had kids, my daughter, when she was from the time she was in kindergarten, I started pressing her school to test her for dyslexia because I could see the comparison. I could see that she thinks the same way I think, that she processes information the same way I do. And I was convinced she was she had dyslexia. And I would go into every parent-teacher conference and say, can we test her for dyslexia? And her teacher would say, I don't see the symptoms. Let's just put a pin in it and, and wait. And why would you wait? <laughs> exactly. The brain and neuroplasticity, you would want to get it as quickly as possible. Why do they always want to wait? Sorry, go on. <laughs> I have no idea, but I, I feel that same passionate gut reaction of, you know, gnashing of teeth frustration with them wanting to wait because I was like, I know there is something different with her. And I was so passionate about it. And the and she has all the same, again, that Venn diagram, all mm-hmm. those symptoms. She has horrible speller. It was torturous for her. But I remember so clearly the fall semester of her third grade year sitting with her teacher and her teacher saying, "She, I really don't think she has dyslexia. She's just emotionally immature for her age and disorganized and spends so much time in her own head. And in retrospect, of course, those are all of the symptoms of inattentive ADHD. So I'm like, how did that trained professional list off all the symptoms for ADHD in a girl and not put it together? But um, Because they're not trained. uh, Yeah, (laughs) I guess. Many of them, most of them, frankly. And so I at that I had a friend who had a, an older son who's three years older who had been diagnosed with um, like a whole bunch of stuff and mm-hmm. by a you know by a trained um, is it a neuropsychologist yeah. who does the assessment? Well, they and can. Was, Many people can, but yeah, that's yeah. And finally, I was like, is. okay, we're just doing it. It's expensive, but I'm tired of waiting for the school district to diagnose her for dyslexia. And she was how old at this point? She was nine. Ugh. Yeah, and okay. um, so we 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 did it, and I 100 percent thought they were going to come back and say she's dyslexic. I mean, I mm-hmm. was convinced, you know. Mm-hmm. Because she's smart, she's in GT. Her reading comprehension when other people read aloud to her was amazing and has been. Um, but, you know, she just couldn't read herself. So we go in, we do the assessment. My husband and I, we fill out all the forms. We we go back in for the like the follow-up meeting and they're like, yeah, she has ADHD. And I, I about fell out of my chair <laughs> because it had never occurred to me that that's what it was. Um, 
so then, you know, it was like a whole different set of expectations for how to handle it. And we resisted medicating her for probably longer than we should have, but I wanted her, I knew how smart she was. I really did. And I wanted her to have a sense of her capabilities without medication. I wanted her to know like she could function and, and, you know, now, of course, a lot of people say, oh, you should medicate them young so that their brains can adapt to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They can teach them what they need to do. Right. Yes. Yeah. But at the time we just didn't have the right resources and it wasn't even that long ago, but I feel like, like we just didn't have the right resources, but that was the decision we made. And I started learning about ADHD. I sort of dug in and did a deep dive and my son is two years younger than her. So we had him tested when he was in the third grade. And he, of course, has ADHD also. And they their symptoms exhibit in slightly different ways. Um, and it's probably gender and it's probably other things as well. You know, they're just different kids. But by the time he was diagnosed, I was like, you know what? I think I think I have ADHD also. And so I didn't go through the big formal, formal assessment, mm-hmm. but I found a doctor that I went to and, um, you know, we, we talked and I explained the, the history there and, and he was like, yep, <laughs> you have ADHD. And after that, it was just a lot of deep diving into trying to figure out what that meant and finding the right resources that talk about ADHD without just being big, depressing downer, you know, like I remember early on, one of the first books I read, um, about ADHD for your kids, I had to stop at some point and I don't remember what the actual title of it is, but the title I mentally gave it was your child's life is going to suck and you're probably making it worse. And it wasn't until I found resources like your amazing podcast, which um, I want to like pause the 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 rest of the conversation to say what a tremendous honor it is to be on the podcast because I feel like I feel like finding your podcast was the beginning of my journey to loving all of the amazing things. all the amazing gifts that ADHD has given me in my life that there are challenges, of course, but it was literally your podcast that started me on. I mean, that led me to um, Hallowell's ADHD 2.0 and helped me sort of reframe how I feel about it and how I feel about it for my kids, which is just amazing. I mean, I feel like you do just amazing work in the world, which is awesome. Thank you, Emily, so much. I really, really appreciate that. Because, you know, gold stars. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. So once you knew it was ADHD, what changed for you? I would say the biggest sort of ripple in, in my life for me and my career and all of that kind of stuff came... Several years after, well, okay, let me backtrack. The first big change was getting medication for myself. That made a big difference. And I do take, it's a, it's a pretty low dose, I think, of, of Adderall. Can I say that online? 
Make yeah. Sure okay. Yeah. You know, um, when I, I, I often forget to ask a guest, <laughs> okay, well, what do you take? And I always get a message back. You need to ask them what they're taking. Not that because it works for you, it works for them, but right. you know, sometimes it's just helpful to hear what yeah, works yeah. and what doesn't. And I am super cautious about it in that I, you know, I understand the, you know, sort of your body returning to homeostasis and I don't want to gradually inch up and all that kind of stuff. So I really only take Adderall on days when I am going to be at the computer writing. Um, The rest of the time, I just sort of manage it with other things. You know, I manage it with, with lists and scaffolding and all of that other stuff. But Mm -hmm. when I'm writing, I really do need, um, I really do need that level of focus that the Adderall helps with. So on any given week, I take it three or four times a week and almost never more than that. But which isn't to say that I know other people take it every day and I'm not, I have no judgment about that. But for me, I feel like I want, I want to reserve that for the days that I where writing is a priority and where I feel like, cause that's where I get the biggest gains, right? Yeah. You know, that's where I can do a lot of other things without needing that, but I need it when I write because that's, the thing I'm passionate about. And that's where I want to be um, my most focused self. But then circling back to the what what changed beyond that, for me, um, the RSD, rejection sensitivity dysphoria, mm-hmm. that, right? Yeah. That one is huge for me. I would say like my, my biggest ADHD symptom is actually that. Um, because, and I don't know if this is just like a, a, a writer thing. It probably isn't. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I feel like, you know, when we're, when you write a book, when you put a book out there, you get a lot of critical feedback and uh. <laughs> <laughs> so much critical feedback. Right. And it's really hard. And when it's the thing you are passionate about and the thing that you are convinced you are here on this earth to do, and you get feedback from people who absolutely mean the best thing, you know, they, they want the best for you. The feedback is meant, it comes from a place of trying to make the book better, but oh my gosh, it feels horrible. It feels- So are you talking about editors? Editors, critique partners, beta readers, all of that. Where, weirdly, I don't get that that gut level pain when I hear back, when I like get reviews after the book is out there. Once the book is out there, I'm fine, but it's when it's still in flux that the feedback from editors and critique partners and things like that just guts me. And... Um, when I first started writing, I would meet with a critique partner and she and I did not live in the same town. So the drive was about an hour to see her and we would meet and she would give me feedback and I would sit there and I would listen and I would take it and I would nod and act like I was fine. And then I would get in the car and I would stop 10 minutes down the road and pull over by the side of the road and just sob because I wanted so badly for my books to be good. And And it's not that I want them to be effortless, but I just, every, every bit of criticism 
was physically painful, just like they, you know, just like when you hear the description of RSD, that it like criticism makes you feel physical pain. That is absolutely what it's like for, for me. Now, when I am somehow the Adderall helps (laughs) that. Um, And so, but understanding the RSD and, and getting treated with, with medication makes it bearable. But um, I tend to get very downward spirally. Like I can't, all of this is, sorry, I'm not phrasing any of this very well, I feel like, but I do. You actually are, Emily, because like I can feel the pain when you talk about it. Yeah. And I know that you've said, I've heard you talk in the podcast about feeling like maybe that RSD specifically accompanies people who have trauma. Mm. And I think that probably, um, that's probably true for me. Um, you know, I, I love my parents and fully recognize that they did the best they could by me, but, you know, my mom is bipolar and my dad, who I think probably either has ADHD or is on the spectrum, one or the other is kind of emotionally unavailable through most of my childhood. So, and then of course the trauma that comes along with having ADHD that's not treated and having well, all those um, years as a child, right. That you went through where yeah, exactly. you, knew you were smart and they, I mean, oh my gosh. So they put you in and I don't know how else to phrase it, but like the dumb reading class, right? And then yes. you end up being a writer. It's like, come on, people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. I just had a comment. Okay. I think out of all the things that I've done in my life, writing has been the most difficult. And having gone through what you've gone through, I mean, I'm not done yet. I'm, you know, my book isn't published, but just working in this space where everybody is pretty much real linear thinking, right? Yeah. Um, And of course they want the best for you, but there is no positive emotion. It is literally all negative emotion. There is never, oh, here's your book that is given back, you know, or a chapter that's given back to you by an editor. And this was the most fantastic thing I've ever read, but let's make these changes. It is literally just all the bad stuff. And I think that that's what makes it so hard because it's just negative emotion, negative emotion, negative emotion, and you're never focusing at all on what's good. Yeah. Yeah. It is really brutal. Um, it is. It's like, and and when you think about the that statistic that people throw around about you need to hear, you know, eight positive things for every one negative thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and in in publishing, you hear one positive thing for every eight hundred negative things. Yes. Yes. I'm still waiting for the positive. <laughs> I mean, I always felt like, you know. I, I don't enjoy writing, It is, I, which is why I just take my hat off to you. It is very, very difficult for me to corral my brain and say, okay, this is point one, and these are A, B, and C underneath it, point two, A, B, C. And I, like, it is virtually impossible for me to do that. Yeah. But I consider myself a very strong writer and a really, really good editor, which is why I'm a strong writer. But after this experience, I'm like, no, nah, my writing shit. 
I can't write, you know? And you think after spending a whole year working on something, you would have more confidence around it because that's always been my experience about everything else. But having gone through this for, frankly, over a year, I really feel like I don't think you're a good writer. I don't, you know, I think you suck. And my editors are so kind. You know, they always come back and say, Tracy, you've never done this before. And it's different writing for, you know, you know, writing an article versus writing a whole book. But you still, even those, you know, one in 800 positive things, you don't really believe them after a while because they're so infrequent. And it's almost like, oh, they're just telling me that. So, you know, I don't give up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, um, yeah, the number of times I, I, I joke that it's like throwing a temper tantrum, right? Like I, I get some kind of feedback and then I pout and I cry and I, I swear I'm going to quit forever. And, um, you know, like I have a friend who once took a manuscript out into the yard and burned it. Um, <laughs> oh no, I hope she had a copy on her computer. <laughs> I'm sure she did, but still the drama of it, you know, mm-hmm. like there is something cathartic about that, but, um, and do yeah. you f- still feel that way? Even at like, I'm thinking how on God's green earth do you write 40 books when one has almost killed me? And especially if you're still feeling the same way that the RSD around the feedback is still really, really, really difficult for you. It is, it, it has gotten a lot better. It's still, you know, when I first went to the, um, the psychologist or psychiatrist, I always confuse those two. The guy who diagnosed me and, and writes my prescriptions. Um, Probably the psychiatrist. Okay. Well, a psychologist can diagnose you, but a psychiatrist or a medical doctor, they need an, you know, an MD right. in order to be able to write the prescription. And yeah. that used to confuse me all the time until I started doing what I'm doing. So I totally get you. So yeah, the psychiatrist, the first time we met and I, and I talked about this and he didn't tell me about, um, RSD. I learned about that later, but the thing he said was, cause I was like, I, you know, I, I spiral. I feel like I'm a bad writer. I feel like I don't have the, the will to continue writing. And the thing that he said to me was, if you're suffering because of your ADHD, it doesn't mean you're a bad writer. He said, if I can't help you fix it, it means I'm a bad doctor, which somehow helped me shift my, so that helped that just that mental shift helped Mm -hmm. fix. And I'm sure like the medications helped as well. But then the other thing that helped at some point I have started to um, really embrace the idea that the stories don't actually come from me. And I think this is part of when I think about like what makes like what gives what superpowers do I have from my ADHD? I feel like one of the things that ADHD people have that neurotypical brains don't do is we are like big like satellite dishes for ideas and (laughs) for emotion. Yeah. So I feel like whether it's a a muse or the God or creative spirit or just the collective unconsciousness, I feel like a lot of the stories I tell come from that place. And 
if I approach it more like, okay, this is a collaborative effort between me and the story and the story Mm -hmm. exists outside of me. Mm -hmm. That allows me to detach myself a little bit emotionally so that the criticism doesn't feel so painful because then I feel like it's less personal. It's less, it's still my job and my duty to do my best to tell the story, but it's not on me alone. It's like, it's collaborative. Yes, it's collaborative. And, um, and I feel like that sort of gives my imposter syndrome a break also. And I also feel like everyone who creates anything probably feels some level of imposter syndrome. And if they don't, they're a narcissist. But, um, you know, when you create something, you are stealing fire from the gods, right? Like totally creativity is that is the realm of the creator. And we're trying to do something that is literally godlike, whatever God or religion you believe in, um, that, that creativity comes from, that's what we're doing. We're creating something out of nothing. And so of course we feel imposter syndrome. We're not supposed to feel godlike unless, you know, unless you're a narcissist. Um, <laughs> so that helps as well. And, um, that helps me like wrap my brain around it in a way that allows me to go to the computer and, and write every, well, write every day that I get to write. So is there actually, I'm trying to, okay, let me, let me figure out how I'm going to word this. Is there a desire and a passion to write inside you and, or is there also, it sounds like there's a lot of difficulty around writing too for you. Is it, is it hard for you to physically write? And the reason I'm asking that is because you said the days I get to write. So that almost sounds like, oh, you love to write and you're passionate about it. But then there's also this difficulty. Yes, both of those things are true. There is a lot of hardness. I mean, it is, it's just difficult to do. I mean, it just is, you know, like, I mean, one, and I know it's not like, I'm not like doing construction work or something that's physically hard. But being at the computer that long is physically hard, especially when you have ADHD and you want to move and wiggle and those things. So there's there's that. There's a level of physical uncomfort. But mostly it's just it's emotionally hard. It's emotionally draining to do it. And it's emotionally draining when you are always afraid that you're not doing enough, you know, that you're not that your writing isn't going to be good enough. And I think I've moved past that sort of anxiety a little bit at this point in my career. But when I first started, it was, I would do the classic ADHD perfectionist procrastination thing where I would put off Mm -hmm. doing my, my work until the last possible minute and then force myself to do it in a rush. And I'm better about that now, though I still do more work towards the end of a deadline than I do at the beginning. So, but I, I also, the joy comes from I love telling stories. And so I've been trying to sort of retrain myself to think of this as I get to write, I get to go play, mm. I get to create something that's magical and amazing. And um, I mean, it's the dream, right? There are yeah. so many people who wish that they could make a living writing. 
Yes, exactly. So I should, and and it is a conscious effort for me to reframe these things. So to make myself approach it with joy, you know, I used to, um, and I still do. I love to go to Disney world and Disneyland. I mean, like, it's like, that's the best ever. And I decided that, um, I think I decided about six months ago, I was like, you know what? I'm going to start treating my office like Disney. Like I love Disney because it's all about story. It's all about positive emotion. It's so fun to be there. I'm like, that's how I'm going to treat my office. I'm going to treat my office like I get to go up into a playground every day that I get to write. I get to go there and just enjoy that creative open space and I think it's working, you know, like if you choose <laughs> to think about something in a certain way, you you can sort of brainwash yourself into having a positive attitude about something, even when it's hard. Absolutely, because you're looking for the positive rather than looking for the negative, right? And so if you're yeah. looking for the positive, it grows. It does. Absolutely. And the you more, know, you know, it's the whole things that fire together, wire together Yep. Um, in your brain, you know, like... So yeah, if you treat it like it's like it's a playground and like it's fun and like you want to be there, the more you do that, the more it will be fun. And the gratitude, right, around the fact that you get to do this when so many people wish that they could do this. Yes. And in the fact that I know this is what I'm here for. Mm-hmm. You know, I listen to to your um your podcast and people talk about not knowing their direction in life. Um yeah. You know, and I know I've known since I was eight that I wanted to be a storyteller, you know, so it's a it's an amazing gift that I know what I want to do. So I got I might as well enjoy it. <laughs> um, Absolutely. You know, it's that angst of the writer that is always. um Oh, I don't know. I, it just makes me incredulous. I remember talking to Ned Hallowell, and <laughs> he has dyslexia and ADHD. Um, Ned Hallowell wrote ADHD 2.0 with yes. um, John Rady, and he wrote uh, Driven to Distraction. But this man has dyslexia and ADHD, and he has written 22 books, and every single one of them has been painful, but it's his right creative. Yeah. And so there's something that happens when he's writing that doesn't happen anywhere else. And I'm just, you know, having done just one book and we're still not done. It just, I'm just incredulous about it all. And it sounds like you have the same experience. It's this love hate relationship. It really, it, it, it's absolutely a love hate relationship. Yeah. And I, you know, I got to tell you, if I, if there was something else I could do, I probably would be doing it. You know, like, and there's a lot of writers who write even, I mean, definitely with nonfiction. um, But even with fiction, there's writers who write one or two books, and then they're done. And um, (laughs) yeah, they learned. And I'm still here, you know, like, I, I still have so many stories to tell. I wish I could write faster. I wish, you know, um, so that's always a, a challenge also is I, I have so many stories to tell. It's not a question of um, that you're running out of material. I am not running out of material. Yeah, definitely. So I'm curious how, and we're backing up a little bit, but how did all this start? So you were a school teacher 
And did you just decide I'm going to go out and I'm going to write a book or you were writing while you were teaching? Like how, what was the transition like? Yeah, I, um, so I always knew I wanted to be a writer and, uh, I thought teaching was going to be my day job. I found an organization called, uh, Romance Writers of America, which is still around. And there's a lot of amazing writing groups. And of course this was long before like, like the internet was a thing, um, or at the dawn of the internet, I guess I should say. So I was lucky to find an in-person group and they had a lot of resources about how to structure a novel and how to, um, how to edit things and they the conferences that you can go to where you meet editors and agents and things like that. And so I just joined writers groups and started going to meetings and learned as much as I could. Novel writing is often largely self-taught. Uh, yes, there are programs, um, but a lot of the academic programs for writing are very sort of serious literary fiction programs. And I knew that was not what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to write genre fiction because that's what brings me joy. And so it was largely self-taught. And I I learned writing and taught at the same time for about four years. And then the school that I taught at uh, was very in a very economically disadvantaged area, and it was hard work. Um, and one day I came home to my husband and I said, what would you think if I stopped teaching and just wrote full time for a while to see if I could make that work? And he said, oh, thank goodness. I have been hoping you would come to that conclusion for the Mm. past year. Mm -hmm. So, and he was just, you know, supportive enough to let me get there on my own. And so that's what we did. And then it took another, about another three years, I think, of just writing before I sold my first book to Harlequin. Oh my God, I take my hat off to you. And so what was that like when you sold your first book? Oh my gosh, it was the best. I was so excited. Um, I had an editor that I had been working with. And so she had seen a draft of a book and she'd sent me revisions and I did those revisions. And then she, you know, she called and she said, you know, this is the call. We want to buy your book. And I was over the moon excited. And of course, then there was another round of revisions. And I don't know if you've, (laughs) If you've gotten, back then, revision letters came on paper, you know, like, because there was an email. Um, And I still have that, that paper revision letter. And I think it was um, 11 pages, 0.10 font, you know, it's like, oh my gosh. And I remember getting that, that, that second revision letter and just sobbing and feeling like, oh my gosh, why did they want to buy the book if there are this many things wrong with it? Um. And then, you know, quietly freaking out the whole time and almost, you know, like calling her and saying like, are you sure? I think it's bad. Let's pull it. Let's not, not, let's not publish it. (laughs) Yeah. But then that first book went on to be nominated for two Rita Awards for best short contemporary and for best first book. So, um, the Rita Award was at the time, um, it's, it was like the Oscars for romance writing. So that was this huge, I, it was just hugely exciting. And that was your first book. That was my first book. And it was wow. like, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe it's going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your favorite book to write and why? 
Oh, gosh. Um, so I had a book out. Let me remember what year it was. It was in, it's in the past couple of years. So let's see. It was in 2021. And it's called Heart Smart. And it was for um, a small press called Smarty Pants Romance. And Smarty Pants Romance is an amazing, amazing company. It's uh, owned by an author named Penny Reed, who writes just amazing, fun, sexy, romantic comedies. And she had enough success that she decided to open this small press so she could sort of incubate other writers. And this particular book is about a, um, it's about a college professor who is on the, um, on the autism spectrum disorder and he's sort of grumpy and growly and he walks with a limp and he has been tasked with giving a, a, an important presentation in order to win a grant and he doesn't want to do it. So his boss recruits a, a communications lecturer to give him a sort of a, a makeover. Um, and this story I had wanted to write for about a decade and I couldn't ever get an editor who was interested in it. And um, there were a lot of things that they didn't like about it. And so I rewrote it and rewrote it. And when Smarty Pants Romance was opened up to submissions, my friend um, who writes as Kat Baxter was like, you need to send that book in. You need to do that. And I was like, oh, but is it good enough? And she was like, oh my gosh, this again, just send in <laughs> that proposal. And I did. And that book has been a lot of fun for a lot of reasons. One was that I had wanted to write it for so long. Um, and two, it's the first book that I wrote with characters who um, are have neurodiversity. So he's on the autism spectrum disorder and she has ADHD. It's my first ADHD character that I wrote. And um, so that makes it really special. And there are books that the, the story feels so strong that it, when I look back, it feels like I didn't write it. It feels mm. like it came from somewhere else. And that book really definitely feels that way to me. Like I remember writing it. I remember the scenes that I wrote that were bad and that got cut. Um, but the good scenes just feel like they came from somewhere else. And so that was a lot of fun. And then to like the cherry on top is that I love audiobooks. I mean, I've always loved audiobooks. And that is my first book that's in audio. And the voice actors did such an amazing job that um, it's just like spectacular. I, I love it. And I have a lot of trouble rereading books like my own books. Yeah. Because it, it's really hard when it's in print and you you can't make any changes and everything that ever felt awkward in the writing oh. is there forever for everyone to see. Um, <laughs> but when it's an audio book and you're listening to someone else narrate mm. it, bring that extra layer of, of character and depth to it. It's amazing to listen to. So I can't reread my own books, but I can listen to my own books, which is super fun. And the actors just did an amazing job. And so that one is, is extra special close to my heart. Plus it was my first book for Smarty Pants Romance. And um, I can't say enough amazing things about, about working with them. So um, 
it really feels like to me, everything else in my career led up to that book. And that's the book where I finally got to become the writer I was meant to be. Wow. You know, what I hear in your voice when you talk about this book is something completely different. You know, that everything fired on all cylinders. Yeah, yeah. Did you, did you have any of the pain? Any of the RSD with that book than you that that you've had with other books? Not nearly as much. Now, mm-hmm. which is not to say um, none. You know, <laughs> like uh, I have gotten a couple of reviews um, on that one where people were like, "Oh, it's obvious that she doesn't actually have any experience with neurodiversity, and that she just threw that in there because, oh. um, you know, because <laughs> it's popular now." Yeah. Um, that is a, is a special kind of RSD that, that fills me with shame and rage at the same time. Because I'm like, (laughs) are you kidding me? Um, but also like it feel, it makes me feel like, oh, I didn't do justice to the characters, um, Mm -hmm. which, but I had enough other people who are like, no, you really did do justice to the characters that I'm able to make peace with it. But so stuff like that. Um, but in general, I feel like that, you know, not every book really soars, but when they do, it's an amazing feeling. So, um, wow. yeah. Well, and the problem is if you only write one, you'll never know that experience, right? Unless like you, you're, you're able to, I, I mean, I can't remember who said this, but the way to become a good writer is to wait, what, what is the, what is the, the, um, quote, the way to become a good writer is to write your first book. <laughs> it might be something like the way to write a great book is to write a lot of bad books first. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I maybe. don't know if that's it or not, but that sounds right to me. <laughs> yeah. No, I always hear. And that doesn't help me at all because, you know, we're perfectionists when people tell me, oh, well, you know, by the time you get to the end, you know, you'll be a really good writer and don't expect yourself to be a good writer right when you start because you need to learn how to be a good writer. I'm like, I only have this one shot to write this one book because I don't think I'm going to do this again. So that doesn't help. And it doesn't help that you're like, you know, well, what about the, what about the characters and the stories that I loved that I did badly the first time? I'm, I've, I've, I've gotten the rights back to some of my earlier books and a lot of people will get the rights back to a book and they'll just slap a new cover on it and they'll put it back out there. And I'm like, uh-uh, no way. I'm going to rewrite this baby from the top down because, or from the bottom up or both, probably. <laughs> um, Inside out. Yeah, because I, you know, I still love the characters. I still love the concept. If I'm a better writer now, then I owe it to that story to go back and do a better job on it. I would think too that fiction honestly, is so much more fun than nonfiction. And just the way, so for, you know, our listeners may not know this because I didn't know this when I started out, but with fiction, you literally have to write the whole book and then you sell it. Versus with nonfiction, what you typically do is you put together a book proposal, which has, you know, a little, you know, bit of each chapter, and then you write two full chapters, and then you submit that, and that's how they buy the book. So I don't know if I could have ever finished your way because it was those deadlines, right, that just got me going. Oh, right. Yeah. And that's what that is one of the things that's hard. Um, 
you know, now that I'm sort of doing my own independent publishing and I'm more my own boss than I was when I wrote for traditional publishers, it's really hard to create deadlines for yourself and then actually meet them. I mean, I'm sure you can imagine the the struggle there. And I, I keep trying to to like find a, a personal assistant who can be the boss of me. <laughs> manage up. That's what I always say whenever I'm going to hire anybody. Can you manage up? That means manage me. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I have not found the right person for that yet, but I'm, I'm still, I'm still working on it. Um, because I, I would love, I would love to have a boss who would set deadlines for me and then be yeah. really mean to me when I'm behind on them. Yeah, but the problem is you're the boss. So how is that ever really going to work? Exactly. So what made you decide to get into indie publishing? Really? um, Well, the thing about writing for Harlequin is they, they are looking for a very specific thing, you know, like they have... They have specific requirements for how long the book should be and what what kind of personalities the characters should have and things like that. And it just after a while, it really, it really, it really chafed. It just didn't feel right anymore. And like I said, there was you know the characters from Heart Smart. Um, I wanted to write that book, and and no one in traditional publishing was interested in it. And so you know, I was just like, okay, it's it is just time for me to do something different. And by then. You know, when I started publishing back in 2002, indie pubbing was not a thing at all. There was no Amazon. There was there were no ebooks, none of that. Um, but now there is. And so as I was reading books that were indie published, I came to the conclusion that there are some amazing authors, I mean, really amazing romance mm-hmm. writers who would never have gotten traditionally published because their books are just too too odd, just slightly different. There's an author named, um, Mariana Zapata who, um, everyone who loves her reads her. Um, and her books just have a ton of introspection, um, which readers love, but (laughs) it's not the kind of thing that an editor would have bought. And so I'm like, indie pubbing allows unusual writers to have a, a market that, um, that traditional publishing just doesn't in fiction. Well, and, and it's true in nonfiction as well. There's, there's more niche, there's more opportunities for niche publishing because, you know, when you're trying to support, when you're trying to support a big publishing company, you've got to make sure the book is going to sell well. And if you're just trying to indie pub, you don't have to sell as many copies so you can find a more niche market. And I, I felt like I was just ready to write books in a niche market that would find a smaller readership, but would still be enough for me to support myself because I'm not supporting the whole infrastructure of a big company. Is it hard? Mostly the, um, mostly the, like the scheduling and the business part of it is still hard for me because I struggle with that. I, I, you know, I struggle setting deadlines for myself and then uh, queuing up all of the other things that need to happen. The, um, you know, the finding and hiring editors and cover designers and things like that. That part is hard for me. But getting to write the books that I love, are that part's amazing. And I guess that 
makes sense for our brains and what we tend to like versus what we struggle with more. Yeah. So one of the things that I want to make sure that I point out, I've been meaning to say it all the way through and then I forget, is because what I work with women on ADHD women specifically is that whole purpose. And everybody always talks about, you know, finding your purpose. And so my premise is always, no, you don't find your purpose. You step into your purpose. And you are the perfect example of that. By the time you were eight, despite, you know, struggling with reading in English, um, you knew that you wanted to be a writer. And by the time you were 11, you knew you wanted to be a romance writer. And that is exactly what you've done. So what enables you to stay in it, because, you know, our bright, sparkly brains, we're always, you know, next, squirrel, you know, this thing, that thing. But (laughs) what has enabled you to stay in it is because it's been built around your purpose. So um, I, I find that fascinating when I hear the dots connect so easily. And it's why you haven't bounced around. Right. Yeah. And, and also with fiction, I mean, the nice thing about fiction is you can, you can bounce around within genres or subgenres yes. to meet that sort of sparkly, um, you know, crow factor, you know, like you're, you know, like we're all like crows. We want to collect sparkly things. Um, and so I can write a romance comedy set in a university and then I can flip around and, and write a romance comedy set on an Island. And then I can flip it and write um, you know, a darker, angsty alien sci-fi romance, you know, um, with more world building. So there is there is that sort of latitude, which is really nice for for my ADHD brain. Cause I, you know, I always wanna I, I wanna push myself and do things that are challenging, um, but also entertaining. The common thread there is always writing. Yes. And I was thinking about um I don't know when this episode is going to air, but I just listened to your episode with the woman who wrote Entrepreneur. Yeah. Miriam Schulman. Yes, yes. Um, which I, of course, immediately went and, and bought, and I have not started yet, but I'm excited to. Uh, it's a great she, book. In her interview with you, she talked about you know trusting that you're going to find your audience. And I think that's huge. Um for, for writers, you know, like trusting that if I write a book, there are going to be people out there who love it. Not everybody's going to love it. Um, there will be a lot of people who won't love it, but that's okay. Cause it will find the people who are going to love it. And, uh, that's, that's a pretty amazing feeling. Well, it's like ADHD, right? When we, um, are willing to risk the visibility, we're willing to not fit in and to stand out. Then our people discover that, oh, you know, there are people, right? We're their people. Yes. It's yeah. the same thing with a book, right? Yeah. And I feel like the more, uh, the more I lean into the writer I am rather than the writer mm. editors think I should be, the more I lean into that author, um, the better the books are and the more they speak to people um, and the more readers love them. That's fascinating. So you find that through your writing, you are becoming more of you. And that is what your audience loves and the audience that you don't have yet finds. Yeah. So what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? That's a good question. Give me a second to mull over it. Mm -hmm. Oh, we have all the time. (laughs) Yeah, I think... um, 
Well, I think understanding helps a lot. You know, being educated about what your ADHD means and um and of course like how absurd that title is because as people with ADHD know uh it doesn't have anything to do with a deficit of attention at all <laughs> or <laughs> yeah. hyperactivity. Yeah. Um one of my my daughter's friends said it really well the other day. He was like he said I am the perfect example of what people think ADHD is. And Addie is the perfect example of what ADHD actually is. <laughs> and I was like, yep. You know, this, this boy who moves around and is charming and delightful. People think, you know, like he has so much energy, physical energy. People think that's ADHD and that's not it at all. You know? So I think understanding what it actually is and how it, like all of the ways it works in your brain with, uh, time management and short-term memory issues, um, like working memory issues, all that stuff. I think that helps because as for me, I do a lot of self-sabotaging. And if I understand the things I do to self-sabotage, I can, I can choose not to do them, you know? It's awareness, right? Yeah. I know for a, for a long time, a lot of my adulthood, <laughs> I would get frustrated with my writing. And so I would go bake cookies because baking cookies is easy. It's, um, you know, like the instructions are right there. You just have to follow the instructions and then you can eat a tasty cookie. Um, you get all kinds of dopamine and re like emotional rewards for that. Writing is hard, but understanding that I would do that because I understood the steps that has helped. So, you know, like I sort of have to create a recipe for what a good writing day is going to look like and write that down and then follow that recipe. And so for me, a lot of it is habit. Any day I don't want to write, I tell myself, okay, you don't have to write. You just have to go upstairs and sit in your office. And then I get to my office and I'm like, okay, you don't have to write, but you do have to meditate first. And then, you know, like after I meditate, it's like, okay, you don't have to write, but you do have to open the document and look at it. And you have to set your timer for 15 minutes and you have to try. Yeah. You don't have to actually write. You just have to be there for 15 minutes. And by the time totally. I, I I talk myself through steps yeah. one through four of the recipe, I'm ready to actually write and it's fine. It's crazy. And isn't it crazy that your brain, I mean, you've been doing this for years and it hasn't figured out what you're doing yet. Like it's fine, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love that. Oops. Hold on one second. I, you know, I don't know why my phone rings when I have the airplane mode on. So for years, my phone never rang. So I could never, I always had to call people. I could never accept a call and I couldn't figure out why it was. And, you know, I got a new phone. It was still happening. So it must've been programmed in. Well, all of a sudden now I can get phone calls, but when I put airplane mode on, they still come through. So I uh. have no idea. Yeah. Anyway, um, wait, I had one more question. So Emily, where can people find you if they want to know more about you and what you do? So I, um, my website, um, I have an, a website for both of my pen names, emilymckay.com and emmaleejane.com. Um, but I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and I assume you can put the links in the show notes. Um, and I, I love 
to communicate with people and talk to other writers and talk to other people who have neurodiversity and um, an ADHD. And so, yeah, just reach out to me in all those places. Wonderful. Emily, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. I knew this would be fun, and it was. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. I really am. Before I leave you, just a quick reminder, the doors for our spring, your ADHD brain is AOKR open. And if you want to save $100, use the code SPRING2023. You can go to tracyotsuka.com forward slash AOK for more information. Again, I would love to have you join us. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Emily, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.